0: Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Pete Townsend. Today, I'm bringing you a special digital wealth asset management show recorded live at two events in London, Irish Funds and Calistone Connect. For two days recently, I stepped inside the funds industry, which is a big component of the overall asset management industry in which I spent over 20 years. For the first day at the Irish Funds London Alternative Investment Seminar, I put together a panel including Rupert Watson, the head of asset allocation at Mercer, Emmett Kilduff, the founder of Eagle Alpha, and Briege Tinnelly, the head of the UK business for AQ Metrics. Rupert, Emmett, and Breeze are all experts in their fields and express some diverse opinions on where things are headed with digital assets. We used the term digital assets quite loosely when we talked about institutional investor interest, regulation, and new data sets created by the digital world. The key point is that in the context of investment funds, digital assets need to be managed, regulated, and fed with data. We began with the new opportunities available in the world of digital assets, kicking off with that most controversial of digital assets, cryptocurrency. Rupert had very strong opinions on this one. He was the opinion that all cryptocurrencies will go to zero eventually, as they hold no intrinsic value.
1: Uh, In short, I think that uh, all almost cryptocurrencies will eventually go to zero. Um, uh, I can't be certain of the time horizon, but I think they will at at some point. Um, I would distinguish between cryptocurrencies and other technologies and solutions that may be built on blockchain – which I think is a very exciting future. I think there are a number of very exciting uh, technologies that will change, change the world, really, over the next several decades. And I think the outlook for the global economy is pretty good as a result of it. But, blockchain, but uh, Bitcoin itself, and indeed other cryptocurrencies, I think are searching for a solution, are a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, I think uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, for example, uh, cannot be a store of value. Um, And I think that it's highly likely it will be a medium of exchange either. I can't see there would ever be a point. I will always be paid in sterling. I will always have to pay taxes in sterling. Uh, And I can't see why I would ever change that sterling, um, whether it's cash or via my debit card, into something else that has a bid-ask spread that goes up and down in price to buy something else when the vendor will also be uh, converting it back into their home currency. Broadly speaking, there isn't a problem with money um, as we currently define it, whether it's uh, the cash we can get out of an ATM for free, whether it's a debit card we at least can use for free um, and everything associated
0: with it. While you or I may disagree with him, it's his job to take a macroeconomic view and Mercer are a conservative shop. Which brings us nicely onto the similarly hot topic of how to regulate these crypto assets if they do become a store of value, contrary to Rupert's view. Breeze took us through the challenges of being compliant and managing such huge stores of data, as well as how to regulate crypto assets at all.
2: I think the the regulatory environment is uh, is one which is a very acute pain point for managers across the global uh, stage, if you will. And that, that equates from a, from a small manager right through to, to, to global funds. The fragmented nature of the regulation on existing, uh, existing regulations is such that managers are struggling to identify how they can actually keep up with those regs, comply with those regulations. So, you know, really they're looking towards um, what type of technology is available to help them achieve that level of compliance Um, They're also trying to do that in an environment where they're having a uh, a challenge to effectively manage that data and achieve compliance. They're also dealing with legacy systems, of course, within their organisations, the day-to-day management and running of the company, whether it's credit operational or market risk, and then also the cost implication. So what does that all mean? Well, ultimately, these challenges uh, really have managers looking for what type of technology is available. So they're looking at and reaching reaching out to the market Solutions such as AQ Metrics, of course, we're a reg tech company. We're helping them effectively manage that data for global regulatory requirements across all asset classes. But that's not the only thing that's happening. You will see a raft of of solutions in market. But at a a government and at a regulatory uh, level, there's also a big shift towards the use of artificial intelligence, for example, and a a drive today even towards managers wanting machine-readable regulatory rule books, for example, to help them in their quest for ensuring effective compliance and also around um, robo-regulation. So in the UK, for example, where you know, the FCA are very known, uh, very much known as, as, as being a, a front-runner in this, they have the sandbox where firms are coming in to, to explore and, and adapt technology um, solutions. But also the government, as part of their fintech strategy, they have a robo-regulation series of pilot schemes that are now in play to ensure that firms are able to to, uh, to comply with these regulations, that's for existing and future regulations, and those challenges will still be in play yeah. for any type of digital asset that may come down the road. Well, of course, the you know ultimately the the need for regulation um, and the 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 um, the requirement for regulating this space, I think, is one that's that's well documented. The, the recent G20 summit um, that took place in March in Buenos Aires um, concluded without a, a global consensus on regulation for. Um, for digital, um, but across the different jurisdictions at a European level, you know the EU is ready to regulate crypto. The UK has taken uh, steps to do so. France, for example, is looking at um, crypto derivatives and futures to sit within MiFID II. For example, can we use the existing regulatory frameworks that are in place that touch some of the fundamentals of? promoting market integrity, um, uh, you know, really challenging or combating illicit activity, uh, protecting the financial system, and indeed investing, uh, investor protection. These fundamentals are part of, very much part of a number of existing regulations today. Um, how does that fold into what the regulatory framework will look like? for the digital asset um, community. But interestingly, recently also Mark Kearney, of course, governor um, of, of the Bank of England, has stated that in the time has come, i quote this, uh, to hold crypto asset, to hold the crypto asset ecosystem to the same standard as the rest of the financial system.
0: We then took a look at a poll we had running with the audience to gauge their views on when or if crypto will become an asset class in the future. Interestingly, we had a split in the room with 43% saying it was already an asset and 38% saying it never would. Naturally, I threw to Rupert for immediate comment on this. Well, I think good luck (laughs) Um, would be the the main point. I mean, you know,
1: forecasting, you know, my job is to think about the future, and um, I'm more aware than most that uh, forecasting the future, crystal ball gazing, is uh, is a difficult thing to do, Um, but I do think you have to be wary if you are investing in something that has no intrinsic value, Um, and... So that is what primarily makes, uh, make, makes me cautious. But you, you know, at the same time, and, and also a point that you know, Mercer more broadly would make, is that when you ha- whatever your investment strategy, you need to be stressing your investment strategy to see whether it can withstand whatever happens, whether it's markets falling or whatever happening. Um, and so we tend to look at portfolios in their entirety rather than any individual asset class in isolation.
0: But the biggest part of all of this is the amount of data now available to asset managers and their clients and how best to manage it all. Emmett talked us through the millions of data points available, the innovation it can drive, and the data science required to analyze it all successfully. Most of our clients are in the US.
3: The US is much further ahead on the adoption curve than uh, funds here in EMEA, asset managers in EMEA. Uh, that's that's despite me spending 14 years working in Canary Wharf and having a pretty good Rolodex uh, in London and and other European uh, jurisdictions. Um, For the last 18 months, directors of research at the buy side have been sitting on their hands. They haven't been innovating, they've just been gearing up for the 3rd of January. Uh, Frankly, I had my own party on the 3rd of January because (laughs) Mifid was finally there. Um, Now they're looking forward, thankfully. They're looking forward, like their American counterparts have been doing for, for a long time, they're looking forward to innovation. How can we innovate our investment process? and big data is an obvious place to start uh, from that perspective. Uh, we've had a few oddball in- inquiries in the last couple of months, but you know it's, it's, it's such a tiny proportion of the whole asset management industry. Um, the types of things that people are looking for, if you go back to the 90s, people used to rent helicopters, fly over Walmart car parks and count the cars. Uh, that can be done now automatically with satellite data for all retailers in the States. Um, uh, so that's one example of the way... You know use cases. So for big consumer staple companies in the states, you know that, that that's an interesting data point. Um, uh, does uh, you know people used to get clickers and count the number of people going into stores. You know that, that yeah. that's been around for decades, right? You can now do that through geolocation data or other forms of data in a much more b- bigger, scalable uh, way with data available via API delivered. You know. Through, through efficiency of technology. So you can analyze millions of data points to, to get a feel for what customers think about a, about a brand. Um, Schroeder does a lot of work on that here in London about brand perception of companies. Um, there's all sorts of things. You can analyze the bill of lading documents that, rep, that, that tell you what's in the back of containers going in, on ships going into US ports mm-hmm. for uh, one of 80,000 HS codes. So you can find out... Um, how much at-leisure gear is going into the States, which would give you a view on the supply chain of Lululemon, if that's what you want to do Amen. from a stock picking perspective. Absolutely. There's just no end to the amount of data to
0: analyze. To Emmett's point, there's a world of data out there, and the job of any asset manager is to make sense of it in order to help their clients. Breeze agreed. She mentioned this new world of digital, companies are always looking for that one golden source of data to help drive decision-making. Likewise, it's why machine learning and artificial intelligence are also hugely important areas to explore for asset managers to use for not only managing data, but making sure it's useful.
2: Ultimately, it is this element of how do we as a company, how do we as a fund effectively manage our data? So the, the, the level of data that's required for the fragmented regulatory environment, so how can we use one golden source, one source of data, in order to comply with every regulatory existing and future regulatory requirement, and indeed internal reporting requirements, reporting to the management, reporting to shareholders, for example. One of the the key, um, if you look at the some of the think tank um, uh, considerations here in the UK, there's a big push from managers to say, okay, guys, we have all this data. How do we use it Holistically, how do we use it most effectively for multiple purposes? And that's what the technology solutions and that's what Acumetrics brings to the table and other technology solutions bring to the table. That's the big driver behind this need for AI and, and some of the robo-compliance uh, uh, pilots, which are also running through. So that, that effective data management is essential. Big pain point and, and the solution is there through technology, ultimately.
0: So what's the outcome? How should we classify crypto? I think the final word should go to Breach.
2: But is it too soon to say, ultimately, whether it has intrinsic value, given the approach that's taken by a number of the regulators, governments, for example, you know, the UK Crypto Assets Task Force, it all sounds very grand. Um, They're looking at the benefits and risks of Mm -hmm. of this as an asset class and what that looks like. So it's an evolving consideration across these jurisdictions. Is it too early to say whether it has intrinsic
0: value? I think we're early. I think it's the 1990s, the internet, where I get really excited is when we start talking about banks issuing cryptocurrencies but that's a a topic for another day.
4: We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code one eight one one
0: FS. That's eighteen eleven FS to get two hundred euros off the ticket price. On day two, I joined the Calistone Connect London forum for a chat on how investor demands were impacting the technology used by the funds industry and asset managers overall, including views across industries. With me, I had Nigel Walsh, partner at Deloitte, as well as host of the InsureTech Insider podcast. Campbell Brierly, the Chief Innovation Officer at Calistone, and Phil Clark from Hunch.
5: So I get a tough question at the outset. Thanks, Pete. You're welcome. Um, so, so I actually am the rogue in the room. I'm, a, I'm an insurance guy by, I say by birth. I fell in love with insurance about 10 years ago. Uh, fascinating listening to the conversation this morning about where asset management is right now. You look back at, into the city in Lloyds of London, which is 300 plus years old or, or, or whatever, and you think, look how well insurance has innovated and disrupted um, from connected health through to connected home to driverless cars through to electric vehicles and the role insurance has in every single one of those things that we do and I love it I get so passionate about what insurance is doing and how we're enabling it I sat here with my jaw down going oh my god what's happened to asset management maybe I just don't know it but actually insurers are sitting there today going electric vehicles will drive more autonomous miles by 2040 than manually driven cars what does that leave us as an insurance organization that has 80% of our book looking after motor premiums? Answer, zero. So that becomes down to a conversation of how we become an efficient manufacturer of products that we have to recreate and redefine for next generation, for uh, uh, you know, auxiliary services, whatever else. And we always become headless. Someone mentioned this morning about uh, open banking or PSD2 that's coming through. Um, or marketplaces like you have with Starling or Monzo and everyone else that's out there. So for me, and, and back to your question, I guess, it's all about how you become an efficient manufacturer. And I've heard lots of stuff this morning about all these reasons we can't do stuff as opposed to things we're jumping in and trying or not making work or moving on to the next stage. And it's, I think someone said, be, uh, again this morning, you can't predict the future. It's, you know, it's quite hard. I'd almost look into the city and see what FinTech and... And in InsurTech have done right now. It's an amazing space that 300 meters away, you can see what's going on right now.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I've worked with a number of FinTechs and seen firsthand how they don't hold up regulation as a reason not to do something. They build it into the plumbing and they build it into the core architecture, right? And, and
5: again, the regulator in the UK is, is upheld worldwide with the sandbox and what they've done with Innovate originally now renamed as a global standard of how regulators can enable competition, enable disruption, as opposed to prohibit it. So, you know, a big round of applause to the
0: guys over there that are doing that right now. Absolutely. What we're also seeing is uh, with regards to where investors are coming from and their demands. Um, One of the last things that I worked on in industry was trying to convince a whole bunch of different people um, that anything you're going to build in terms of engaging with investors should have this consumer banking um, look, feel, smell to it, right? And, but what it turned out to be, um, was one of my favorite sayings, was lipstick on a pig, okay? Um, And Campbell, you and I have talked a bit about this. The difference between what we call digitization, um, which is taking that iPad um, and having that curly Daily Mail newspaper experience where you can pull that up, which is taking something and putting it uh, in a a, a digitized format, versus true digitalization, right? And where some of the virtues of digital that Jason Bates, who's one of the co-founders of 11FS, talks about um, are riches. Who likes mnemonic devices in the crowd here? I love mnemonic devices. My mother loves mnemonic devices. She taught me all about them. Riches. Right. R-I-C-H-E-S. Digital means that it's real time, that it's intelligent, that it's contextual, that it is human, that it's extendable um, and that it's social. We'll come back to the human later on. Um, But Campbell, in in terms of the things that you're seeing in the industry and how that plays out to what you're working with, with Callistone. Um, what are some of the perspectives you could share with us on that? Yeah,
6: it's an interesting one. The uh the statements are horrible lipstick on a pig, but what it actually suggests is, and I listened to the last panel, that uh, traditional tech has probably failed in some cases. Um you really need a decent architecture, proper front-to-back, end-to-end journey, but not just within your own company, with all the players you connect to. The reasons uh, there's some reasons why that's failed, and then therefore people uh, local- localize their solutions. Uh and that's got danger written all over it, but you have, to, you have to provide solutions for these guys. So if you've got a decent architect and you really have done your end-to-end end journey, and you say, okay, uh, we're going to deliver this in five years, not got five years, two years, not got two years. Okay, so we're going to deliver some localised tech for you that solves your problem now. That might get thrown away, right? Lipstick on a pig, that pig is going to the abattoir at some point. Do you know what I mean? So you just be ready for that to die and make sure that that architecture and that frame and that time frame uh, is good, but the the what's happening. I'm seeing now is that uh, the architectures that we're building out have always been based on something that's really, really good. And, and the last thirty years has really helped us with Swift and all these other networks. It's something called messaging, uh, and it's it's fantastic. But what we're seeing is, that with messaging, we're all sending the same bits of information to everybody all the time. Just one trade lifecycle, will send so much information. You're all holding the same stuff, you know. So new technologies are coming along. Let's start. With, let's use the word. You know, a distributed ledger technology, say what you like about, you know, blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. They are giving you the chance to change the way you, rad, you radically change. And this is what Katrina was asking. Said, it could radically revolutionize. So what is that? What can you put your finger on? said, what is that then? It is the move from messaging to a state where we're all looking at the same system. How we do that, how we interface into that mm. is going to be really uh, – it is going to change. And back to your first point about the asset management, that whole value chain. Uh, was a panel last week uh, a TA panel? I said, "Look, TAs, what, what you actually are going to do is you're going to make sure you provide the, that interface for the asset manager into uh, for the fund manager into." whatever that technology is going to be, it might not be blockchain, right? But right now that looks pretty good. Maybe somebody's going to come up with a different framework that says we can definitely share this uh, information between each other in a, uh, in a different way. Now I could ramble on more about that stuff, so I'll maybe stop before I start boring people.
0: No, no, and I, I think it's a very good point is that there are te- technologies that are enabling change, yeah. right? and there are things that are happening. Um, and we hear about, well, let's grapple a hold of, of these disruptive elements called technology. I look at that and I say, wonderful, you know, that, that's some pretty cool tech there, but it's business models that yeah. disrupt yeah. rather than technology that yep. disrupts. Absolutely. Um, and people vote with their feet, right? Um, Airbnb are disrupting the hotel industry not because they built a better hotel um, or they're leasing a better <laughs> hotel, um, yeah. it's because they made the experience better yep. um, and they connected with their customer, yep. right? How do we see investors um, starting to vote with their feet um, and, uh, Nigel, I'll, I'll put this back to you, and whether it be, um, you know, coming from what you may observe outside uh, looking at the investment industry or what you're seeing in terms of how uh, insurance customers are making their decisions, right? How do you, how do you see that evolving?
5: It's a really interesting one, and you talk about business models to shop disrupting. I'm a tech guy at heart. I absolutely love it, but I don't like tech for tech's sake, mm. other than at home, which drives my wife insane. That's a different debate. <laughs> um, but in the, in the, I've had people come to me and say, we want to do a blockchain pilot in this. I'm, I spend months talking them out of it. Unless you know why you want to do it, it's just like, so what? Oh who's it going to solve? What's it going to solve? Um, I talk a lot about something called frictionless insurance in a land, in a land of utility, It sounds like a complicated buzzword. It really boils down to frictionless. Get rid of all the pain points. Simple survey. Who loves insurance in the room? (laughs) Two of us. Look at that. Two of us. I'll just help her. (laughs) We've got three of us. We've got got a lot of work today. But I generally love, and let's be clear, none of us can drive, uh, get a house normally, or do anything in our daily life without the joy of going through a price comparison website or a broker or anything else that we do. We have learned to hate insurance. We need to learn to love insurance again. So people like Lemonade have come out, these juvenile brands. You talked about the the brand, personal brands, that appeal to different people. And they've made the whole thing friction free, i.e. it's easy to get. Neos, one of the startups here in London, put in your postcode. It goes and gets 251 pieces of external data, brings it all back and gives you a quote. Now, psychologically, most of us in this room aren't ready for that because we're going, hang on a sec, I'm used to giving you 50 pieces and looking at the lock on my front door going, is it that lock or that lock? I have no clue. So they're slowly getting to a point where they're using external data to make it frictionless. The second part of that, so one is the technology friction-free. The second part, then, it goes back to business models where you talked about sharing economy, um, whether it's Uber or whatever else it might be. But we all, in theory, work in a gig economy. And, you know, as we move to people that will live into the, you know, to the hundreds plus... We're all going to end up working longer. And they say actually, the gig economy isn't just for millennials. It's for people that want to retire at 55, have a change yeah. of career, do three different things, work in a coffee shop, do something else, give some time back elsewhere. What are the things I need from an insurance perspective to either enable that, rent a car, get a journey? Uber isn't about just um, giving up my car. It's about mobility. As someone who's no longer capable of driving, can I get from point A to point B to do a job that I love doing? I just can't drive going forward. And they're all the new things that these are enabling, in my mind, in a very, very different way. That insurance has stood up and gone, how can we help these businesses be successful going forward, not prohibit them by going, actually, we work in pools, therefore you've got to buy it for a year. Services like Trove, you can literally swipe on and swipe off insurance for your iPad, your phone. It's coming for your car or, your, uh, or everything else very, very soon. And that's supported by big brands like AXA. So there's loads of great guys out there now going, actually, we're going to partner with these guys to try something different. The last thing I'll say is um, the real currency here for me is speed. So in my old insurance world, we would have taken a five-year implementation, yeah. launched a product, done a really, really good job, all path each other in the back going, great, we've got some new technology, and then it's sit there for 10 years. Today, we can launch products in 30 days to market, probably less. So brand new from standing, scratch, or from standing still, um, go design a product, get it into the market, test it, 30 days. So speed is our currency, yeah. nothing more.
0: Yeah. I was at a conference last year where sitting in the crowd and someone asked a question of one of the panelists who was representing an enterprise software firm um, who was talking about quarterly releases. Um, and someone in the crowd who wasn't aware of that that's how things work said, you only do a release once a quarter? Yeah. Um, tell us about your architecture and, and, and why, why does it need to be that way? Um, Campbell, what... How are things evolving uh, based upon what's sitting behind all of these demands on the investor side um, in terms of what it's pushing um, companies to do and businesses to do that are supporting investors um, and how they architect and build their own technology?
6: Yeah, I mean, we obviously are uh, an agile framework. 30 Days is roughly where we are. We're having a look at continuous uh, deployment development. You know, you'd never do continuous deployment for somebody with a pacemaker because if you get that wrong, it's not good but if you do it in terms of small bits of functionality uh, you know, and you can roll back quick and it's not mission critical, you can move forward really quick. But what we are actually finding is we are very comfortable in the uh, agile space with the 30 days we are. Uh, Roughly, like we have two weeks, and then some testing is all very good. But it focuses everybody, so we could we could actually speed that up. We're always in a position to roll stuff out, right? It's just we have a lovely focus, and it seems to fit the the market space. But in terms of uh, what you're saying, in terms of the, the investor uh, experience, that's a different technology. We are looking at uh, we are looking at moving. The you know the whole value chain uh, in the funds industry, the bit at the front, the bit of what should we be looking at, like the monzos and, and all that stuff. Although the investor is uh, less engaged frequently in terms of it's not as frequent as banking, they, that technology should be uh, coming. On. We're not seeing that yet. Yeah. At the one, but we need to. Our our mantra is to is to beef up that uh, that whole infrastructure. So when that volume hits, you know we don't all we don't all faint. And it looks pretty much it's it's in line.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, Philip, just swing it over to you. Um, you, very interesting presentation that you gave uh, and talking about branding, talking about what Nike are doing, what Adidas are doing. Um, do, you, do you have any insight into how some of this may evolve into the savings patterns of millennials in terms of um, disposable income, you know, we earlier today we heard someone say that millennials don't have any money, but I think they do. It's just what are you doing with it, yeah. right? We talk about um, wouldn't it be fantastic by leveraging something like PSD two, the Payment Services Directive, the second one, um, that you can actually present to anybody, not just a millennial, but someone on a phone. Listen, you spent two grand. Uh, in the last uh, two months on completely frivolous stuff. If you (laughs) had invested 1,500 of that, um, look what you might have uh, a year later, right? Those types of things. Do do you see any of that unfolding with with the conversations you're having? I I
4: think the, there was a a slide earlier talking about the fact that um, uh, regulatory drivers were taking all the funding, and there's very little left for discretionary uh, proposition development, and that's true across retail financial services. So we did some work with Visa, and it looked like something between 90 and 95% of retail bank spend was driven directly or indirectly by compliance, which means doing interesting stuff, the stuff that we do, like doing stuff that's not on this year's change map, doing stuff that isn't driven by a regulator, that isn't incremental, that stuff, you have to fight for the 5%. So it's it's really tough. Okay, so first thing is getting airtime, getting senior leadership buy-in is hard. And what it means is that with that 5%, people do the obvious stuff. So in open banking, um, all of the banks spent all their money getting compliant. Then they'll spend a bit of time looking at data aggregation and a bit of spend analytics. You know, we, we did that five, ten years ago, and it, customers didn't care that much then. I don't think they'll care that much now. But if you start getting into more automated services, mm-hmm. you start to use smarter algorithms. It's not like the tech and the smarts aren't here then you can start to be really useful. And you take people beyond, here's some information about you, and beyond, you really should do this, into, I've taken a small step in your interest on your behalf. Mm-hmm. You can reverse it out if you want. And that kind of default in type stuff, I think is the only way we're going to yeah. get there. I, we can do it. Customers don't trust most big banks in the UK. Yep. Okay. If you look at who they trust, it's the people who represent their values. It's about transparency and authenticity. It's the nationwide building society. It's TSB who, being part of a big, ugly Spanish bank, have convinced people they're a little local British bank. (laughs) This is all about perception. So I think the text there, the opening up of data is there. But I think customers are increasingly leading complex lives, and we sell them products that were built 40 years ago. A credit card, a personal current account, a savings account, a pension, a mortgage. These things don't join up at all. And those silos, it's how we organize our businesses. It's how people are incentivized around p and It's how we build technology. Those silos don't serve really the interests of modern customers. So if we're able to separate the way we manufacture products and the way we manage risk in those products and start designing around a customer, being more open to sometimes they're in credit and sometimes they're not, and sometimes it's an asset and sometimes it's a service, then I think we can... Get beyond price comparison.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you, you spoke, you spoke uh, in, the, in the last discussion there about the difference between products and services. And in asset management, we see products being pushed through channels. Mm. Um, when I think what people really want is a digital intelligent service. Let, let me add to that though. You've got 10, to, um, I'm
5: sorry for harping on about insurance, it really is quite exciting. Keep going. Tell so us more about insurance. Yes. But, but you, we've all got 10 to 12 policies on average if, when you take into account motor, home, health, pet. Pension, there's a lot, and to your point, no one wants it. It's all sold in silos. It's how do we get back to a, or imagine a service where we had an all risks policy? So you turn up at the airport and you land, you turn your phone back on, you go, hey, I'm in wherever I've gone skiing, and Revolut, which does it today, pops up and says you've landed in a foreign country. Would you like insurance for the day? Yes, no, tick. Right, we're no longer talking about. Transact or interactions that go, I'm buying travel insurance for the year, for the family, it's now, it's here and now. Yeah. And it's building that engagement interaction around my specific needs at any particular time. Hey, Nigel, you're home again, we've just turned this off for you automatically. It's about being relevant and convenient for where you are and what you do. Yeah. yeah. And the same goes back to who doesn't want to lead a longer, healthier life? So whether you wear a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or whatever else, there's enough stories out there that say, actually, they're giving you enough insight or a baseline, whether they're yeah. accurate to one 100 or one hundred or 1,1000, it's not relevant. They give you insight that allow you to make choices about what you do. So Vitality is an example in the in health insurance space we're saying, we're going to reward you, not with a lower price, but with things that you enjoy doing, whether it's cinema, whether it's theatre tickets, whether it's coffee vouchers, things that you enjoy doing... By being healthier, so walking your ten thousand steps
0: or getting your X amount of exercise each, each week. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Part of that is that I was speaking with an insurance company, former head of an insurance company in the U.S. Um, and it was one of the one of the big old ones. I'm not going to share the name, but that they focused on being part of the community, right? And being that first person on call when someone's crops got wiped out by a hurricane, mm-hmm. right? And you know that that is that is personal. That is, there's a real feeling to that. Um, and they operated through 25,000 branches across the country um, and were that, you know, key point the, of, the, of the community. Um, they needed to move all that because that was getting expensive, right? So what did they do? They focused first on how do we virtualize that yeah. um, and putting that community feeling online. That didn't work. Mm-hmm. So what did they do? They started talking to their customers. So they put in this overnight response unit um, somewhere offshore that was looking at all of these inbound customer queries coming in uh, and responding to them within a matter of minutes, Um, and their net promoter score went through the roof, and so did their business because they were actually talking to their customers. One of the things about asset management is that we have 60% of the flows of that industry going through institutions separated from the end investor. We have... 30% 30% roughly um, going through the wealth channel, and we have 10%, if that, going direct. Philip, do you see any risks out there from other industries or other things where um, people aren't speaking with their customers on a regular basis, and what might happen to those industries?
4: Um, yeah, I, so we do a lot of work in the payments industry, um, and if I look back 10 or 12 years, I'd sit with the great and the good of payments, and they talk about PayPal being a parasite, and the industry had built these infrastructures and they were safe and they were secure and they damn it, they knew what it should be. And PayPal was outside that circle of trust and couldn't get in. And PayPal had to go the long way round. Pay a lot of money to go through intermediaries into the clearing system, but customers loved it, right? It gave customers yeah. a it solved the customer problem that banks weren't stepping up with. Often when I'm talking, I, I point out to to bankers that in the twelve or fifteen years since Elon Musk sold his share in PayPal, he's also revolutionized the space industry, the clean energy industry, and the car industry. Right? We still don't have a bank-centric alternative to PayPal, okay, so entrepreneurs make new stuff happen quickly. I think pay- payments is an interesting example because entrepreneurs make the stuff happen. They do the dirty work and the workarounds and the slightly questionable, is that how you should do it in the background in order to deliver for customers something that customers want? They've also got a no legacy, right, there. to your point. Yeah, for sure. They don't have to unwire all of that stuff.
6: Yeah, and they but, also, they're naive
4: too. Yeah,
6: but look at the way Elon Musk does it. He, he drives forward and, and drags the regulator with him. Absolutely. We, we've heard today that the regulators are driving us.
5: Yeah, well, that's, I mean... And uh, again, uh, I, I disagree with that entirely. <laughs>
0: so. I mean, do they need to, right? I mean, we, we've... You know, I see regulation as presenting opportunities. Um, What we have is a whole morass of legacy infrastructure here, like we've been talking about, that slows people down. Um, You know, 40% new spend on on, uh, regulatory requirements on a year-to-year basis. That's a lot of money going into that, but that's because of the legacy infrastructure layering on top instead of... Yeah, there was a nice
6: solution there in terms of tech could come up and get that regulation stuff quicker, better, faster, then you can move on to the good stuff. Totally so yeah. there's a nice rebalance there, and I think yeah. it's yeah. down to the techies to, to
4: have a run at that. You know. But I heard Simon talk about margins earlier as well, and I have to say, if this industry is making those kind of margins, it's a target. It's yeah. just the target for a generation of uh, investors and a generation of customers who think it can be done differently and better and
0: can raise the funds and they can execute against it and find out whether they can. Well, can it better. be done? Can it be done better? Is there a different business model for asset management than what we see today?
6: Well, you know, there's the obvious one, right? But uh, yes, I mean, if you, if it goes back to what I said about messaging and all that uh, information that you're moving about. And it's not just the fact that you're moving that messaging about, you have to make sure that's okay and you're reconciled. It. And if you, know, if you go through a trade life cycle, you sit here all day talking about the same bit of information in the bank. So, you know, distributed ledger technology does give you a you know, gives you an opportunity to really go to your board and say, right, we're going to we're going to hit off some regulation stuff. We're going to make it cheaper, better, faster, so that we can we can supply the back end uh, technology and infrastructure to make you know that customer experience um, much better and cheaper. So if you put five quid into your fund, it doesn't you know cost you a few pence to. Well, I think
5: but that's... it's fundamentally the same thing, there, right? So
6: uh, well, no. When you're moving moving from messaging to actually digital, you're sharing. The same, you're having a mutualized system. The end system. product
5: is fundamental. Yes, the end, yeah. end
6: product, absolutely.
5: So, so, think about it slightly differently. And if I give you again another example from an industry I know, yeah. um, the reinsurers have done really well at enabling the startup community to go, actually, you know what, brokers out there in the insurance world, will they survive or not? Most people will say, actually, they will survive. Will they have a different role in the future? Yeah, absolutely, they'll mm-hmm. have a different role, and they'll always have a place. However, reinsurers are sitting there going, we've got access to regulation, we've got capital. In some cases, the likes of Munich Re are providing platforms for people and going, you want to get there fast? Here's my platform, here's my paper, here's my regulation, go. And they're doing a really, really great job of it. Then other people are looking at the business model and going, so Hartford Steamboiler, they they used to be an insurance organisation, part of Munich Re that looked after machinery and stuff in buildings. They went out and bought a bunch of IoT companies, so Internet of Things, connected organizations. They went from a company that sits there waiting for a claim and sending out their engineers to a preventative maintenance company. Absolutely. It's almost now where you go, I'm not buying insurance. I'm buying warranty that happens to have a byproduct that's insurance. In the same way that you buy... Um, uptime in engines for aircraft. You don't buy the physical engine, you just buy uptime, they get serviced automatically on an ongoing basis. With IoT and the connected data, we can actually go actually average mean time between failure between that piece of kit is this, let's do some preventive maintenance and let's sell them the service level. You're fundamentally changing the product you sell mm. and I've now got thousands of people around the country going, I'm the number of claims handling agent, I'm a proactive monitoring service agent for Nigel Walsh. Hey, Nigel, you left your windows open. There's about to be something that's going on. Would you like us to shut them for you automatically? Uh, Nigel, you've got something wrong with your blood sugar level or whatever else. We've made an yeah, appointment yeah. at the doctor. Yeah. We're moving into a preventative state. It feels, many look at it and go, that's a bit strange, it's a bit too much. But actually, if it makes my life more convenient and I can get more joy out of it at the end of the day, why wouldn't we do it? It goes back to time. If I'm buying more time as a result of it, it's a great place to be. I think we
4: know that the way it is today isn't the way it's going to be. Yeah. If we together painted a picture of future, it wouldn't look like it is today. Okay. I, um, I uh, had a, a horrible and embarrassing illness uh, last week, and um, it was Sunday night. I didn't feel very good, and I thought, I need to speak to a doctor. Okay. I've got private <laughs> health cover, but I didn't know who I'd call. And I went online to see if I could get a GP appointment, and I could but three days later. And so I downloaded an app. I think it's called Push Doctor. Or Babylon, right? Yeah. I mean. 12 minutes later, I was speaking to a GP. Um, he prescribed something, I pressed the button to accept the charge, and the next morning at 9 o'clock, the pharmacy next to my office had the prescription waiting for me. It's the NHS, right? Yeah. This, is, this is healthcare. I, there's lots of data about me. I downloaded an app, and I spoke to someone, and I got my service, and I paid for it, and it was done. And I think that's the, the reality of entrepreneurship. Mm. Complex industry, really don't care. I will find a solution for a customer, and they will probably have to pay a bit more to start with, and I will probably make a loss to start with. But as Richard pointed out earlier, the growth in economies now is about top-line growth. We'll make the margin later. I want to acquire customers, and I want to build this new paradigm. And it has to happen in this But what industry. you've
5: described is orchestration of... So, and, and whether it's true, and I need to double-check my facts, but they talk about Uber having changed the business in many different ways. I hate Uber or GAF, for example, in general, but this is, um, technically speaking, all they've done they've got one patent. One patent. All they've done is orchestrate services that exist today yep. to get you Connecting someone to take you from the back to mm-hmm. frictionless. I've taken away cash. I and mean, They're no good at carrying cash. Yeah. They've taken away, standing in the rain, looking for a yellow light in, in London or a grumpy black cab driver. Um, and they give you the access to a vehicle that would be there when it sells you is there and it's going to text you and interact with you the way you spend your time. Absolutely love it. If we can, in my, in my mind, if we can make a guy cycle a bike to give you a takeaway <laughs> through delivery or whatever else it is, almost anything is possible.
0: Absolutely. And it begs the question, what's the job to be done, right? Mm-hmm. And I was saying to, to someone this morning that within the course of probably 15 minutes, I was able to open accounts, not all the same day at the same time, but with n 26 with Curve, uh, with Transformate, uh, with Fire, which is a, a financial provider in Ireland. Um, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. um, where it can take 15 weeks to open an account. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at the institutional level, um, with a an asset manager, a financial services provider, um, things just need to be easier. What is the job that needs to be done? The job isn't for me to open an account. The job is for my wealth to be preserved and to be grown, right? And and um, there's gotta be an easier way to do that, is kind of the question. Um, looking at all of that and and just swinging the swinging the conversation to um, the driving force of, of change, the two billion, Philip, as you mentioned, uh, the millennial crowd. I'm getting sick of saying the word millennial <laughs> because it comes up in so many conversations. To me, it's just... Say snow better. flakes, snowflakes. Snowflakes, snowflakes yes, yeah. exactly. Um, self-selectors is something that I've heard better. You just get on with it, you get things done, right? Um, there's uh, John Willis on one of the podcasts that we do on the FinTech Insider. Um, he talked about his 18-year-old um, that was playing a video game with his 8-year-old uh, Minecraft, I think it was, um, and that uh, the 8-year-old was racing through the game and saying that uh, I'm going to pick up all of these weapons and I'm going to score some points, um, and the 18-year-old was saying, "Listen." you You got to slow down. If you actually don't pick up everything, you can actually earn more points, um, and it can grow and grow and build and build. And John witnessed um, his 18-year-old son teaching his 8-year-old son how to save and invest. How do you get an 18-year-old with some means of disposable income to actually start socking away 50 quid a month? My view is that the first thing is about self-awareness. Okay, so none of
4: us really understand very well and how we behave and why we behave that way. And remember that when Moven started, they had a little uh, line, three or four questions, that was about your financial personality. And I think we we probably talk, I imagine as an industry, a lot about the lack of education and the lack of expertise. RDR has really polarised that in that people won't pay for what they perceive as generic advice. And I think there's a there's a real opportunity to better serve and educate customers so they know themselves better. I'm the guy who has £20,000 sitting in my current account, but I'll spend Sunday afternoon price comparing a toaster. Yeah. Okay? Not (laughs) smart. I like to think I have some self-awareness. I still do it. And so actually I'm looking for a service that helps me understand myself better and then maybe control myself, maybe put in place conditions so I have some optionality, but I know that I'm not going to get there on my own. Yep. So some pseudo-smart digital services, whether I'd use them, let's test and learn, let's put it out there and see. There's got to be something, because at the moment it's all baffling to me, and so I don't
0: start that journey. Yep. So instead of making beer with your leftover bread, you can now make toast. That's good. Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Okay. Um, moving up the curve a bit to the, to the 25-year-olds, to 35 35- to 45-year-olds. Um, I was speaking with an asset manager recently uh, who was looking at the 35, to 45-year-old segment and saying that um, that's our focus. We're geared on that because these are the people that are getting promoted. And when you get promoted, you will hopefully have some more disposable income. You're moving up into the C-suite, so on and so forth. Um, that is the beginnings of the millennial generation and the, well, the ending of the millennial generation and um, the beginning of the next um, where do we see uh, where do we see the focus? Where do we see the focus on the larger scale across the economy in terms of um, where those that can make money off the money that people make off of other people's money? Um, <laughs> what what should they be doing? Where should they be focusing? What segment and where does it most make sense to to be commercial? Right, Nigel, any view on that? It's a really hard one, and I agree. I mean, education is a fundamental... I've I've got two
2: young
5: kids, and I'm sitting there going, you two have bank accounts, because I've given you a bank account, and I have a nationwide building society account, because my parents said, you'll want a house one day, son. You need a building society account. And I've still got it, and they've still got 53 quid in 20 years later. Um, So I'm always turning into my parents, which is a scary thought in itself. That goes back to the fundamental flaw for me is education. How do we educate at an early age? At at 21, I was dragged aside and said you need to start spending 50 quid a month yep. for your pension. Yep. What? No one's doing that right now. No. Or no one's doing it in a way that's digitally engaging or engaging the mindset at the right time. But often then you go back to affordability. And we were talking um, last night or a few nights ago about the cost of university or the cost of studying in London or elsewhere. And the 50 quid might be the difference between eating that week or my accommodation or into a pension. So we can't see yet what that long-term value is going to be. So I think we've actually got to start earlier than, uh, earlier than that point. But when we get to that point, we then go, actually, how do we engage these folks in the most effective and easy-to-use yeah. way? I interact with my bank today. I'm with Starling Bank, but I interact with my bank through things like chatbots on Facebook Messenger. It's alien to most people, but I can actually – don't want a Facebook Messenger and go, uh, transfer this to Emma, my wife, or whatever it might be, in a heartbeat. No logging in, no Face ID. No, It's moving at pace. So we've got to stay connected at that pace and keep doing things like that. You talk about financial services companies. These guys are rolling stuff out daily or weekly. And that, for me, is really, really impressive.
0: Oh, absolutely. The education is such a huge component of it. I was speaking with Sean Port from Nutmeg on this last month. Um, and I went up to him after he was, at a, uh, he was speaking on a panel. I uh, said, Sean, love what you had to say. Um, one thing I'm really interested in, though, is have you guys yet looked at... The level of or the amount of money you're spending on investor education um, with the videos that they have on the website so on and so forth um, versus inflows and outflows mm-hmm. and when they post a new video educating, um, how does that work uh, and he kind of looked at me like, no, but I think you're on to something mm-hmm. right yeah, really. The idea is is that if you spend this money on tube ads, if you spend this money on uh, video wherever it's going to be to, to monetize that, you bring an investor on board and you, know, you go through the next three months and there's a market shock and it goes down 10%. That customer acquisition cost is is gone, right? You know, you've know, you spent money to bring a customer on board that doesn't understand long-term investing uh, and will pull their money out um, you know, as soon as the market drops. I, mean, I, was with my, I was with an advisor the other day who turns up with his
5: iPad from one of the big investment houses and says, here's what we're going to do, then brings out a wadge of paper like this. And it almost made me just the fact i was looking at and stuff i was just like okay, this is hard as it is and it wasn't in english And they there going i don't i work in the industry i don't understand anything you've just said to me give or take but it was just unengaging yeah i thought i'm someone that you should be going after you know early 40s i'm gonna be with you for the next 20 years it can't be that it really can't be that because if that's what you're bringing to me i'm not in
0: Yep. Yep, I would, and I was on the uh, it, it, the website of a of a U.S. asset manager messing around. I could still do that because I have a U.S. citizenship still. As you can tell by my accent. Um, Was fantastic. They asked three initial questions about me. What's my risk profile? How old am I? How do I feel about the markets? I was brought to a video on Smart Beta um, with the head of Smart Beta for for the U.S. business telling me about uh, and educating me about that. I got it because I have a finance degree, but it wasn't something like you're saying that was um, immediately uh, digestible. Uh, And then was brought to another part of the website after the video where I was given a list of 100 funds of Smart Beta funds to pick from. I'm like, oh, geez, how do I do that? And then after I might have looked at a couple and picked them, I said, well, you need to go to this other website from this other provider to actually buy them because we don't have a license to do this in the U.S. And there's that disjointedness of where this end-to-end customer journey is just kind of in a few different places right now. Um, we've seen some good examples of how it can, good, can be better in the market. Um, Campbell, just from your perspective, anything that you're noticing that you're looking to in kind of your innovation circles when you say they're doing something really good out there, obviously, beside Calistone? Uh, no, we're, we're, uh, we're the postman. We connect people up in terms
6: of the actual products. I, I go back to the education one. Should we be seeing more cradle-to-grave type uh, products out there? Should we be yeah. being a wee bit more creative about that stuff so that you're talking to your kids and I'm talking about my kids when she gets older, enough. About uh, you've got a you've got a cradle to grave product, you know. And here's the limits. This is what you can do with it. You can take some money out for your gap year. You, that's for your studies, et etc. Cetera, et cetera, but get them engaged in the actual process of investing. That's you know, an edu- and the, the education's both ways, right? Not just the product. The guys need to know who the, you know, so you, for that 18-year-old answer, should you target the uh, the parents to get a cradle to grave mm-hmm. and hand it over as a absolutely. A, come sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk, talk and to you about your portfolio that's not very good. Of,
5: there's plenty of products out there now aimed at kids that are yeah. getting really really good. I mean yeah. my, my son's question to me is Dad, I'm going to save for he's, a, he's I'm going to save for a car but can I spend four pounds of the seven pounds I just earned over Easter holidays (laughs) on Pokemon cards? I said, Oscar, that is your decision. And ultimately, it was the first time ever he's put his hand in his own pocket and paid for Pokemon cards. But he saw the fact that a car would cost X and actually this is what it's going to cost for those cards.
0: Yep, my seven-year-old daughter bought shoes last week. So you see see it all happening. (laughs) Just before we move to questions, um, just a quick one from the crowd. We talked a little bit earlier about platforms um, and the growth of platforms and how things move. We talked about trust and trust in brands, um, Amazon have talked a lot about, and I know you hate GAF examples, but I'm going to do it anyway. Thanks, mate. <laughs> um, Amazon, lots of whispers in the, in, or, or actual outward statements in the news about what they're up to on that financial services side. Just by a show of hands, if Amazon Wealth um, launched, how many people in the room would actually invest through Amazon Wealth? Yeah, okay, a few. Wine. You know, we, we, got, we got probably about a third of the room, a quarter of the room. What if Google, did Google wealth? Anybody in the room? Far fewer. Anyone hazard to take a guess why? Well, uh, my experience of Amazon is that there's always someone I can go back to. And there's a level of trust. There's brand. I'm already buying from them. Not many people are buying from Google, right? So
5: so so just to add to that, Amazon's, and I do use these, I do hate them, but (laughs) Amazon is outstanding at execution. Yeah, very good. You look at the website and compare it to a John Lewis or anything else out there, it is from 1984 at best. It's miserable, but you find what you want, you press order, and it's there either in one click, it's there two hours later, or the next day if you've got Prime or whatever else. It's beautiful from an execution perspective. Imagine if your life ran like Amazon's execution Mm. engine. Never mind the user experience. The user experience is miserable in my mind. (laughs) It's not like a Monzo or anything else that's out there. Um, But you trust it. If they say they go deliver, nine times out of ten, 9.99
0: times out of ten, they deliver. They do. They do. And it's a far better experience than opening up a packet of chicken, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Um, My wife won't do that either, and she's not a millennial. Well, she's close. Anyway, just wanted to say thanks to you guys. And on that note, that wraps up another Fintech Insider Digital Assets Insight Show. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.